Welcome to Spark Science. I'm Regina Barber de Graff, an astrophysicist teaching at Western Washington University. On top of teaching physics and astronomy, I also teach science communication. I'm actually teaching it this quarter online during this new state of higher education. But I digress. This episode, I won't be your host. This episode is the second this season featuring final projects from a past science communication course where each student decided to showcase a scientist they admire. Our first student segment shares the story of a professor's academic journey from Ethiopia. I'm so proud of these amazing students because all segments are heartfelt and compelling. I hope you enjoy listening to their work. For questioning STEM, the podcast where we invite a guest from science, technology, engineering, or math fields and interview them about their experiences in that field. I'm your host, Chase Bogio. I'm a physics undergrad at Western Washington University and I do research in astronomy. My guest today is Dr. Takale Seda who's a professor at Western Washington University. And specifically, he was my professor for modern physics and is currently my professor for electrodynamics. And we're going to be talking about what it's like to pursue science in another country. The first step to pursuing science is having access to primary and secondary education. Uh, you grew up in Ethiopia, so what was that like for you? Yeah, yeah, it was not easy. Getting to school was difficult as a young boy because it is far away from where we are. So, those living, there was no many schools around. So I at least have to walk one way an hour to go to school. Mm-hmm. And I started actually my elementary school a little bit later than I was supposed to do because I have to be strong to go through those. Middle school was about three hours where you have to stay for a week. And high school was, I said, you have to walk 100 kilometers on foot, then take a bus to go to the school where it is, another 35 kilometers. So you stay there for a semester. But I went through and uh, really, it went okay. Was there a point when you knew you wanted to pursue a science career? I can't say no because we don't have really much to choose from where we can see peers or other people going through different fields. So we didn't have that many people to look up to where you want to end up in the future. The only thing we know is we have to go to school to get maybe a better life. And the only people that are hired in our area are policemen and teachers. Mm-hmm. So the the best that we can wish to be was to be a teacher, I think, because we don't know any other thing there mm-hmm. in rural Ethiopia. When did you decide to be a physicist? As a student, when I started school, really, I liked maths. Mm-hmm. So and most of the time when I sit down to study, I have to have a pen and a paper to work on. Mm-hmm. So I was not really into the social studies and other fields to go through. I was not good at those. 
but I like maths. Um, I went through that, and I liked science and physics is actually just like maths also. But what I wanted to be when I actually went to my undergraduate and declaring as a major was to go to chemistry, and the the thing that why I want to go to chemistry is that is actually a better field to get to a job that you can stay in cities, mm-hmm. work in industry and so on. If you major in math or physics, you know that you end up being a teacher in rural Ethiopia. So I was running away from that, really not being a person that likes chemistry rather than physics and math. But the dean of the college at that time said that I cannot go into chemistry and he put me in physics because my grade was better in physics than chemistry. Wow. That is how it, I end up in, in physics. We're in 2019 and yeah. we have internet access at our fingertips. And I looked up that the uh, the first edition of Griffith's Introduction to Electrodynamics, which is my favorite textbook so far, it wasn't published until 1989. Yeah. So I guess I have two questions for you. Like what years were you in those higher level institutions? And then also like what sort of uh, resources did you have when studying physics? You're asking me this because I'm using this textbook to teach you. And mm-hmm. I, I like that book and it is the best textbook I have ever really read through as a student or as a, a professor also. So I was in undergraduate university. I started in 1984, then complete in 1988, I think. As to the resources, of course, internet, we didn't know about that at that time. But even access to textbook, we cannot afford to buy a book. Yeah. So there is no textbook individually that a student can own. So the only thing you we rely on was that from the lecturing class, and also from the library. Mm-hmm. And in the library, there are no enough textbook that each student can have. So you have to sign up for about an hour or two, mm-hmm. maybe to read that. So that is the time I take all my notes with me, pen and paper I said, and use that time for whatever course you want. And then after you go to the lecture, it is not a whiteboard the way we use it, it's a blackboard with a chalk on it. Mm-hmm. So the uh, instructors actually give a good note on the board, so we have to really write that down and then revise ourselves as well. Yeah, that's the way it is. Got to be a quick note taker for that. That's right, sure. uh, yeah, you have to do it, yeah, <laughs> that's what it is. It sounds like the teaching style is very lecture heavy. Mm-hmm. But at Western, sometimes we'll have classes where we have discussions on topics or the the homework will be pretty collaborative uh, yeah. oftentimes. Uh, so I guess uh, it's kind of a, another two-part question of what was the teaching style like back then when you were in your undergrad and your graduate programs? And then also, because we have such a tight-knit cohort system here at Western, did you have a cohort with your fellow students? Yeah, so I'll start with the first one in terms of collaboration and student-centered teaching. That was not the case back home. I, when I'm in my office at any time, my student can knock on the door and come and ask questions. There is not like that there. Yeah. You cannot really do it to a professor like that. You cannot go into office and ask questions like that. So we are really very restricted in that regard. So we have to rely on ourselves 
and um, so that is the case the way i learn also just mostly lecture probably you can see my style also because i went through that i'm still dragged into that when i'm teaching but i try sometimes asking students to work together especially for the introductory physics so it is mostly lecture you listen to the professor and then you take the note and then you have to work on that by yourself so it is not like this it is not a card like that. but when um, the way we worked out was that we had a group of students really i have about three or four friends that we work together and uh, the way we went through actually we, we were successful by doing that is we actually assign a subject to individual of four of us oh, wow. and for me it was physics and the maths and one of my colleagues will take either the English language or the chemistry or some other thing and what we do is we prepare an exam for each other oh, wow so with that actually we prepare the exam and then we grade it and then once we grade it we come together and discuss what is wrong what is right with it whether even the question itself is right or yeah. not so it was a good group that we went through and we became actually successful in that and we all went through college so that's the way we normally work out my last question for you is do you have any advice for uh undergrads studying physics <laughs> I don't know if I'm a good advisor at that because, <laughs> because the culture, the way you approach things here is completely different. It was for us, there was no option. This is to, the option we had was one thing, that thing is digging into everything by yourself and it gets through. Mm -hmm. So work hard that it gets through. The same applies here. I think you work hard. You, and I, students here are also working hard, but you have also at the same times, at your disposal, you have the resource, whether it is books or other thing or the professors mm -hmm. so I think if you can make use of that you'll be successful I think work hard and use the resources that are available for you and some of the best resources is just the, the people around you yeah the exactly same thing. Yeah, yeah yeah that's what it is and and students are also working together and, and helping each other that's really good you can learn from each other actually more than you do from classes sometimes i think also it helps cultivate respect between students because i've seen that that there's some things that i'm just not as uh, as inclined towards when it comes to certain physics subjects but there's some stuff that i'm really good at that other students who i've seen excel in the departments i'm not so good at yeah. uh who struggle with it especially visualizing stuff that's usually something i can help with when it comes to the math other people help me and exactly. and it's yeah. definitely a yeah. A symbiotic relationship it has to be like that I mean sometimes it's difficult if a student thinks that he's the best of all and and it's difficult like that but we have to think about really whatever it is somebody will have something to contribute yes that's what it is You're listening to Spark Science, where we're featuring student podcasts. Our next student shares a conversation with a physician who opened a free clinic in Nepal, and who also happens to be her mother.
My name is Maria Waters, and I'm sitting down with my incredible mother, Elisa Williams Warren, an ARNP and PhD candidate in public health sciences. I decided to sit down with my mother to talk with her about her work while I was growing up in Nepal, both the capital city of Kathmandu and the village of Mugu. We are here to talk about how she communicated her science to communities where their first language was not English nor Nepali. I'm Elisa Williams Warren and currently working with an aerospace company in occupational health and urgent care, but spent 17 years working in South Asia, doing a lot of different things from wilderness medicine to literacy, uh, specialty consulting to um, consulting and assessing health programs in Nepal. One of those health programs, I remember a designated medicine cabinet and assorted medical tools in our either room adjacent to the entryway or at the bottom of the stairwell where you saw patients in our house. So tell me a little bit about that. Most of our homes, I had a little clinic, an open free clinic um, that was part of our outreach and our literacy program. So patients would come, mostly women and children, because often that they were the ones in the family who would not receive money to go to health clinics where they may even have to pay 10 rupees, 15 rupees. And so I did see a lot of women and children. And also they were not deemed as important to receive those services often in their culture. So when they were really sick, they would just come see me. I would treat them in between teaching the kids classes or doing some other odds and ends, but yeah, adjacent in the foyer, in the mud room, mm -hmm. wherever it be, out in the village or in the capital. It was kind of a pro bono clinic that you had in our house. Here in the U.S., I think when we think of medical care, we have this perception of it being really expensive. And taking that and translating it overseas into an environment where the people you're caring for have even fewer resources available to them. What was your strategy with acquiring the required medical equipment and medicine that these people might need? did a lot of fundraising. A lot of folks from the U.S. and across uh, the globe would contribute a certain amount each month that would go towards buying medications locally. The equipment that I used, most of it was donated or we would raise funds for me to purchase equipment. And with that medical care, I think here in the States, when I go to a doctor, I get a printout sheet that's a summary of what I talked about with my doctor, what medication I need to take when, when I need to reschedule an appointment. How would you communicate to the patient's follow-up instructions or letting them know what medication they need to take when? A lot of the cultures I work with, because Nepal has a diverse ethnic and linguistic population, so a lot of the communities that I served or that would come to me had an oral tradition. So explaining things as simply as I could, using terminology that might be more familiar with them because a lot of them would have at most maybe a grade three education in the national language if they were fortunate. Um, some of them would not even have that. So using symbols like writing on a medication, I would if something needed to be taken two times a day, I might draw two circles with a line joining the two circles. And that would just signify 
take two times a day and that's something that they seem to um, be able to remember well of course the ultimate goal was to try to develop materials in their own language or at least picture books picture posters health literacy materials of that sort that we could post around the community that might be helpful to them but on a day-to-day -day basis for basic instructions a lot of it was oral tradition or i would just have to simply write some symbols for the individuals who didn't even speak Nepali, the national language, because they belong to a different people group, they'd often come with their nephews or nieces or children, right? And have them be this translator. Yes. So I see that even in the States where you may have a family member who helps translate and you know things are being lost in translation because you might say at least a few sentences to try to educate or teach. And then you may hear that relative say just maybe three or five words. So you know quite a bit is being lost in translation. But hopefully that family member will also be there to help in the home. Also too, part of my job while in the capital was trying to help these people navigate the national healthcare system just to become a little bit more comfortable. Not so much in the village because I was it in the village. I was the healthcare worker in the village. So I would try to train some locals to do some basic first aid type things. But in, in the capital, part of my job too was to help these villagers not be so afraid about coming in, in a clinic environment, but also I would go out with them when they would need further diagnostics done, say blood testing or ultrasounds and just be there and help them navigate the system. Again, bringing in family members. So once the family members or those people have done it once or twice, then they now become the experts in their communities and their families, and they will have people asking them to help them navigate the system as well. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like a lot of this health literacy work wasn't just about how to say when to take a medication, how to take it, but it was also about if you needed more care, how to navigate an established system like a hospital. So going off of that, are there some things that you wish would be different as far as how hospitals communicated with patients? I think well, comparatively in the U.S. at least, there's such a need for efficiency because our healthcare system is a business. It's being run as a business. It's less of a service. Yes, there's a service industry aspect of it, but that is only the patient satisfaction aspect. So statistics come into play to find out statistically, if you have this type of surgery, it takes you how much time to heal. So insurance companies are only willing to give or pay for so much hospital time. They're only willing to pay so much for a 15 minute visit, a 30 minute visit, or willing to only pay so much for a biopsy that they think should take 15 minutes, but sometimes it could take up to 45 minutes. So a lot of our healthcare in the US now is being shaped by economy and not by service. Were there insurance companies in Nepal for say an expensive surgery that would have to happen in Nepal or is that kind of a different world, so to speak? That's a different world. Unless you are working with an international aid agency, it was pretty much unheard of. Families would have to foot the bill themselves. And that takes a lot of toll on communities. It does. So if you're thinking 
in a culture traditionally where the family might have resources to only send one child to school and in a culture where the boy, the man, stays with the family and will eventually take care of his parents and his sisters or his siblings, then they're going to just put the one son through school. It would be considered a waste to, say, even put a daughter through school because she's going to be married off and become part of another family. So it's it's not just development or just healthcare per se, taking care of somebody's immediate needs. It's trying to transcend or reshape a lot of different cultural norms, like education for girls. That was part of our development work. Did you ever find a pushback against you being a woman in this field? No, as an outsider, they kind of expected that we would have different cultural norms. And as a healthcare provider, I was already given that kind of instant respect. One thing that we learn in grade school is the concept of germs and having to wash our hands. How do you explain germs? There's something that you cannot see to people who don't have that education. Well, fortunately, they do have the concept of kita or little bugs. Um, whether they think it's orzuga or worms. So they understand that somehow like intestinal worms will be really dinky and they tend to grow. Mm -hmm. So I would say there's kita, or I would describe it as such, worms or bugs in the water that they can't see, but if you let it grow there, it it will grow bigger. I remember a clear-cut example. I was doing some staff teaching to doctors and nurses in the capital and watching one of the staff who had been, was educated and knows the concept of germ theory, drinking out of tap water. And I was asking what they were doing and said, well, this water is clean because it looked clean. And then just bringing them back to the basics and taking some of that water and taking it to the lab and showing them under the microscope that indeed it was not clean because it looked clean. And then they, they remembered, yes, okay, filtration and whatnot. But to a basic villager, they're not going to understand that. Mm -hmm. They're going to look at something. They're going to think that it looks clean. We have that in our country here, too. Mm -hmm. Something looks clean. Something may taste okay, but actually it's not. Mm -hmm. It's tainted. So you just have to reinforce, you know, don't drink water downstream. Sometimes it is trying to teach practices that would be less harmful because you're not going to have the ideal situation. So they're going to drink stream water. Where's the best place to drink stream water? You don't want to drink it downstream from the pen of sheep. Okay, let's try drinking it from upstream from the pen of sheep. At least it might be cleaner. <laughs> so it sounds like the takeaway message with how you communicated healthcare to these people was to relate it to their culture. Try to, because if they don't see themselves as part of the message, they're not going to believe in it. They're not going to adopt it. Mm -hmm. They're going to think you're just saying some weird thing that they sort of kind of heard maybe from somebody who's talking about those Nepalis in the capital city, but it's not going to be applicable to themselves. Mm -hmm. So um, unless anybody, even in this country, unless they see themselves in the message, they're they're not going to adopt it. Really have to be empathetic with our communication. Empathetic with the communication. Know your target population. Look at our local TV ads. Nike. Okay, who's in the ad? Mm -hmm. What populations are they going after? You can tell what is their target audience. Same concept. Today's episode was recorded in Bellingham, Washington by students taking science communication in the spring of 2019. Spark Science is produced in collaboration with Camry and Western Washington University. 
Our producers are Suzanne Blaze, Robert Clark, and myself, Regina Barber-DeGraff. Our audio engineers are Zarek Coakley, Julia Thorpe, and Hannah Clark. Script support was done by Aaron Howard and Ariel Shiley. If you missed any of our show, go to our website, sparksciencenow.com. You can also find past episodes from previous seasons at this website. If there's a science idea you're curious about, send us a message on Twitter or Facebook at Spark Science Now. Thank you for listening to Spark Science. Spark Science.